Okay, so just a little bit of background. So Dogen is the founder of the Soto Zen sect in Japan. Yeah, Soto Zen. In Japan today, there's three sects of Zen Buddhism. There's Obaku, Rinzai, and Soto. By far the biggest are Rinzai and Soto. Hakuin, who I talked about last week, uh, he reformed the Rinzai sect in the 17th century. So he's the great sort of master of the modern Rinzai movement. And Hakuin uh, Dogen was Soto. For those of you who are interested in this kind of thing, D.T. Suzuki was one of the first great sort of uh, Japanese teachers in the West, and he w- he brought Rinzai into the West. And Shunryu Suzuki, so they're not to be confused, he brought Soto into the West, and he founded the um, tradition that became the San Francisco Zen Center, which is a very big Zen, uh, Zen center in San Francisco. And there's a lovely book called um, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Shunryu, Shunryu Suzuki, which is a really delightful book if you can get hold of it. And that's from the Soto tradition that I'm talking about tonight. So how are they different? Um, obviously, there's a, there's a lot that's similar. They are both Zen. They're all Zen traditions, but there are some quite crucial differences between the different sects. Um, they all do Zazen, which is meditation, but the Rinzai tradition has got a big emphasis on koan, and I talked about koan last week. So koans are insoluble riddles that you can't crack with the rational mind. And in a way, the, I think the purpose of koans is to concentrate the energy of the disciple, to bring all your energies together around a sort of central key problem. Um, one way it's described as it's an artificial method of concentrating the energy of the student. So koans are things like, um, what is the sound of one hand clapping? Yeah. So you just reflect on that. What is the sound of one hand clapping? Clearly there's not an answer for that, is there? But if you think about it very, very deeply, you can penetrate through to reality. Has a dog got Buddha nature? That's another very famous koan. Has a dog got Buddha nature? Mu is a famous koan. Mu, not mu as in cow mu, but uh, it's the Japanese um, symbol for no thing or not. So you reflect on not or no thing very, very deeply and you can break through to reality. And that when you read the stories of Zen students and um, in very intensive practicing situations, they do just turn the koan over day and night very, very intensively. There's there's this fantastic book I, I love this book called Pure Heart Enlightened Mind The Life and Letters of an Irish Zen Saint is what it's called so Maura O'Halloran was a woman who lived um, very recently she went to Zen as a young woman uh, went to Japan as a young woman in the early 80s and she studied at a Soto Zen temple and you really get a sense of how intense it is really really intense she does things like work all day, meditate all night, and sleep for two or three hours in a sitting position. And that's following the tradition of Dogen. That's the sort of thing that Dogen did. She does things like begging in winter barefoot and gets frostbite on her feet. So they do these very, very, what we would consider rather extreme things as a way of breaking through. But it's very, very inspiring hearing her story, her wholehearted dedication to her practice. And, and she has these massive breakthroughs. And she is considered by her teacher to be enlightened. And then she's going back to Ireland to form, to found a, a Zen center there. And she's killed in a bus crash in Thailand in Chiang Mai. So it's very tragic. At the age of 27, I think she dies. So she's now revered in Japan as being a modern saint. Very interesting. So if you want to read a, a sort of contemporary young woman's experience of being in a Zen temple, this is a really excellent book. It's based on her diaries and her letters home to her mother. So it's been put together by her mother and her sisters and her brother. Quite. takes a certain temperament, though, when you read it. You think, wow. And I have to say, I'm incredibly attracted to it. That sort of really intense practice. Um, but I often say to people that I'm very, very drawn to Zen, but I'm very glad that I happen to stumble across the FWBO rather than a Zen movement. <laughs> when I did... And the reason I say that is because I think probably I could have driven myself quite mad in Zen. I think I've got the sort of temperament that I would have gone at it very, very full on and probably had some kind of psychotic breakdown. So. 
the fact that in the effort be such a rounded approach to practice that we offer, I think that's been um, very fortunate that that's what I stumbled across. Anyway, so in the Rinzai, um, the whole thing is you pass koan. So you do one koan, and you have these interviews with the master, the Zen master, Dokusan it's called, and he tests you on your realisation and he'll say things like, you're a complete idiot, and send you back to the Zendo, and you'll try again, and you go with another answer, and he'll say, you're even more of an idiot, and send you back. So it's very, it's quite sort of harsh from that point of view about breaking the ego, breaking one's pride. And then when you pass one koan, you're given another koan, and there are hundreds of thousands of koans that you can be given. Um... And then what they believe is it's only after realization of all the koans that Buddhahood comes into existence. Okay? So you have to do all this training in order to realize Buddhahood. So um, that is called, by some Zen teachers, the school of awaiting realization. This is an important point, okay? Rinzai Zen, you're not realized until you've done all this practice and... Um, broken through the koans and gained realization. Now, Soto Zen is quite profoundly different in terms of where they place realization on the path. So it's not something that you achieve. But what Dogen, um, this is quite difficult to understand and difficult for me to explain. Dogen's whole approach is we are already enlightened. Yeah? So his school was a silent illumination school. So we're already enlightened. And what we have to do is practice to uncover what is already present. Yeah? So there's quite a sort of um, precise difference between doing all this practice to achieve something and doing practice to uncover what is already present. So that's the main distinction between Soto Zen and Rinzai Zen, as far as I can understand it. Um, however, you still need to practice. Yeah? You do still need to practice. And this is what is very easily misunderstood. I'll go into this a bit later on. But this idea that we're already Buddhas, that can be misunderstood, that you don't need to do anything. And that's why Haku, and when he came along 300 years later, um, I read out some passages last week from his autobiography where he's just absolutely scathing about the silent illuminationists who sit there doing nothing and thinking they're already Buddhas. And all they're good at doing is eating rice and... Um, producing horse flop is what he puts it how <laughs> he puts it and then they're waiting desperately for the bell at the end so they can go to sleep at the end of the meditation so clearly this idea that you're already enlightened can degenerate very very easily into no practice effectively however when Dogen established it it was a very pure form of practice so I'll just say a little bit from um, this lovely book a first Zen reader this is also a really excellent book if, if you're interested in Zen there's a series of talks by one of the leading Soto Zen primates, it's called, and also by a leading Rinzai Zen teacher. So you get very good insight into both schools. Um, a first Zen reader by... Uh, it's compiled and translated by Trevor Leggett. And Sangharaj Tabanto, he recommends this book as well. Okay. The Buddha nature, as the truth in all is certainly there from the beginning. But as regards its action, we must know that spiritual practice is necessary. That's the bad news. Yeah, but we still need to practice. Shakyamuni, up to the time when he declared his attainment of Buddhahood, performed the great spiritual practices, and there has never been a Buddha or patriarch who did not do them. Just as the crude ore is refined in the furnace and then alone becomes real gold, and the jewel only when polished reveals its radiance, so we have to exert ourselves every day and every night in our practices that the Buddha nature may be manifest. In the Shobo Genzo classic of Dogen, so Dogen's got this very great text which has come down called the Shobo Genzo, which is virtually um, ununderstandable with the rational mind, but it's his great text. He says, Every man or woman is an instrument of the Buddha law. Never once think yourself not so. By practice, you will assuredly have direct experience of it. So he introduced this way of practice, I think, trying to make it very, very accessible to people. The teaching being we've all got Buddha nature, we've all got, from a certain point of view, we're already enlightened right now, it's just that we don't know it. That's the kind of pith of his teaching. 
So he tried to make it accessible to all kinds of practitioners and lay people. So for him, practice um, is not different from realization. So practice and realization are the same thing. So that, that's different from practicing to become realized. It's more you practice to express the realization that you've already got. Yeah? Quite hard to understand, isn't it? But I think Zen is hard to understand. But this idea that's very, very kind of optimistic message that we've all got this kind of jewel within us. It's just that we don't know it because of our ignorance. Okay, so before I um, tell you about his life story, I just want to go a bit um, the lineage of Zen because I know some of you weren't here last week. Probably quite a lot of you weren't here last week. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, so I I love this story about how the Zen tradition came into being. So um, it dates right back to the time of the Buddha. And I'll read you the bit I read last week um, about the first transmission from the Buddha. According to the tradition, the Buddha was once seated in the midst of a great concourse of his disciples. Hundreds of bodhisattvas and arahants, monks and nuns, lay brothers and lay sisters were present, as well as various orders of celestial beings. All were silent, waiting for the Buddha to speak. This, of, this is, of course, the customary setting for a discourse by the Buddha, but on this occasion, this is fantastic, instead of speaking, the master simply held up amidst the silence of the assembly a golden flower. That was his discourse, yeah, held up a flower. Only Mahakashapa, one of the oldest disciples, famed for his austerity, understood the meaning of the Buddha's action and smiled. Amazing, isn't it? I mean, that, that, isn't that mad, really? That, you know, you ha- someone holds up a flower and someone becomes enlightened because they understand the meaning of the golden flower. The Buddha then said, I am the owner of the eye of the wonderful Dharma, which is Nirvana, the mind, the mystery of reality and non-reality, and the gate of the transcendental truth. I now hand it over to Mahakashapa. So this was the transmission. This was the first transmission of the Zen tradition. Golden flower, Mahakashapa got it. That was the beginning of the tradition. Then there were 28 Indian patriarchs in that lineage, handed on from one to the other. And it's said it's a heart transmission. So it's handed on from heart to heart, like a bowl of water with never a drop being spilled. I mean, that's great, isn't it? You know, this you get it and you hand it on as a heart transmission the 28th Indian patriarch is Bodhidharma very famous figure in Buddhism and he he went to China so he took the Dharma to China very remarkable man and Bodhidharma um, he's very very famous it's said he travelled when he got to China he travelled north to Shaolin Temple and then for nine years he sat in a cave looking at a wall nine years sat facing what's very very famous in Buddhism Bodhidharma sitting facing the wall and according to one legend at one point he was so frustrated by going to sleep that he ripped off his eyelids so there's quite a lot of pictures of Bodhidharma with his eyes really wide open and staring and that's Bodhidharma after he's ripped off his eyelids to keep him awake that's the kind of I mean that sounds awful doesn't it well it does sound awful but actually I find something very wonderful about that as well this guy with such kind of intensity of practice that he would rip up his eyelids I mean it could also be apocryphal but that's definitely the kind of spirit of Zen and then he got it he then passed it on the sixth Chinese patriarch was Hui Nang again a very very famous figure in Buddhism Hui Nang was such a great teacher he passed it on to 43 people and one of those um went on to become the Rinzai tradition and one of them went on to become the Soto tradition. So Dogen is in that lineage of heart-to-heart transmission that goes right back to the Buddha. I think it's important that we know that. It's not that you know someone in China or Japan just sort of dreamed up Buddhism or got it from the text, but there's this whole kind of this, this living heart transmission that went down the centuries and it continues. This book, um, that... Zen reader thing I showed you the primate of the Soto Zen he says he's something like the 98th 
um, figure in the lineage. So even now, people know where, where they come in that lineage that goes right back to the Buddha. So when we're feeling sleepy in our meditation, we can think of Bodhidharma in his cave, facing the wall, ripping off his eyelids. If you find that inspiring, which you might not. Okay, so coming to Dogen. Um, he was born in 1200 in Kyoto, and he came from the family of high arist- aristocrats. Okay, so he's very sort of um, born into favourable conditions, material conditions. Now, about eight years earlier, there'd been a big social revolution in China. There had been a rule of an emperor for a long time, but for quite a long period of time, the warrior classes had been getting stronger and stronger. So there'd been some kind of a transfer of power. And in 1192, there there was a whole new government. So it was a time of great social upheaval that he was born in. And his father managed the relations between the new warrior leaders and the emperor. So he had this quite very important position, but also dangerous position. And when Dogen was two, his father died. And there were rumours that he was killed to do with his political position. So he was this little boy whose father died when he was two. His mother died when he was seven. Okay. And she also came from a high family. So here he was, this little boy who was an orphan by the age of seven. So it's said that he had a very lonely childhood. He was a very bright child. At age of three, he could read a Chinese poem. And at the age of six, he could read very difficult philosophical texts, Buddhist philosophical texts, a little bit like Haku in last week, who also had a prodigious, what's the word, prodigious, is that right? prodigious memory when he was a little boy so Dogen was very gifted intellectually as well when he was 12 he really wanted to become a monk so he had this experience of impermanence as a child with his parents dying and he really wanted to become a monk very like Haku and again however his family the people who were bringing him up they didn't want him to become a monk because he was very bright they wanted him to have a political career it's quite like the Buddhist, Buddhist story this born into a wealthy family and it was expected that he would become Um, an aristocrat and a leader so secretly when he was 12 he ran away he walked at night um, on foot to a Tendai monastery on Mount Mount Hai H-I-E-I very like the Buddha leaving home This, this young lad you know running away in the middle of the night and going to this monastery his uncle was a monk there but rather than his uncle saying great to see you. His, monk, his uncle knew what the family wanted of him and tried to persuade him to leave. Tried to persuade him to go back home, but he wouldn't. He was so, such a determined young man that eventually the uncle let him stay. So there he was at 12. He'd gone forth from his home life and joined the monastery. And he became a monk the next year, which I think was quite unusual. So when he was 13, he took the precepts and became a monk. He stayed at this particular Tendai temple, which is Tendai was a, one of the prevailing uh, Japanese Buddhist schools, not a Zen school, a different sort of school. I stayed there two or three years and studied very hard. It's said that the total Buddhist scriptures were read by him twice, which is virtually an impossible thing to do. Now again, that could be apocryphal, but he was obviously a very, very dedicated young man. Now, this is, this is wonderful. After he'd studied so hard, you know, last week I talked about how good it is to have a central spiritual problem, to have something that kind of burns inside us that we don't get to spur us on in our practice. So here he was, he was about 15, and after all he'd read and studied, he had this really big question, really big question. If all beings already possess Buddha nature... Why does one need to arouse the will to enlightenment and engage in practices to realise it? Because the Tendai school also believed in Buddha nature. So if I've already got Buddha nature, why do I need to practice? And he really, that was a burning question for him. Very, very deep question. He couldn't understand that. Um, this this, this um, teacher on YouTube puts it really well. He says, if all beings are so excellent, why do they need to practice Buddhism? I like that. That's his kind of... Japanese-English translation. If all beings are already excellent, why do we need to practice Buddhism? So this young boy went and asked lots of the older monks this question, and he didn't get a satisfactory answer from any of them. 
It seems to be the way with a lot of these great masters, they get these kind of deep, deep sort of problems and questions, and they're not satisfied. Even the Buddha, you know, the Buddha went to lots of different teachers, and he would practice for a time, and then he'd think, no, this, this master hasn't got the answer, and he'd go on um, to another master. So here was this young guy asking this question. Apparently the Tendai um, tradition at that time was quite um, philosophical and theoretical. So they discussed lots of sutras and so on, but people didn't really have an answer. They didn't really practice in that kind of way. No one else had really come up against that particular question. I guess you just practice because your teacher tells you to practice. But you don't think, well, why am I practicing? What's that got to do with Buddha nature? Um, So he, le- he leaves. This is, this is again what these people do, these great masters. If they're not happy, they leave, they go somewhere else. And of course, this was, a, was within a historical tradition where going from temple to temple was quite usual. It's what people did. So he went to Onjoji Temple, which still exists today. And he had a friend there um, that was the abbot. So he asked the same question. And the abbot says, Even for I, this is a very difficult question to answer. Even for I, it is very difficult to answer your question. Um, but the abbot knew a monk who had recently, recently returned from China where he had studied Zen. So Zen at this point wasn't in Japan at all, but this um, monk had just come back, and his name was Isai, or Isai, who's quite a famous monk. He, he brought Zen to Japan, first of all, in the Rinzai tradition. And he was at a temple near Kyoto called Kenenji. So this friend of Dogen said, well, why don't you go and ask him? Why don't you go and ask this other chap what he thinks? He's got this great teaching from China. Um, so this is an interesting answer. You, I don't get this answer, but some of you might. Checking out your Zen mind here. So he listened to the question and said, I don't know whether Buddhas exist or not, but I know that a cat or a white ox exists puzzled. <laughs> I don't know whether Buddhas exist or not, but I know that a cat or a white ox exists. And Dogen was really happy with this answer. Yeah. So the, this Japanese teacher on YouTube says that uh, he thought this was suggesting that the teacher, Isai, thought that a ther- theoretical problem wasn't very important but practical problems are important, like does a cat exist or not? Well, that's important because it's in front of you. But this, do Buddhas exist or not is very theoretical. So he was giving him a very practical answer, and Dogen really liked that, because I suppose up to that time he didn't even get any theoretical answers. I mean, I don't really understand that, but Dogen was really excited, so he moved to this temple to study with this teacher. I, I mean, I really love these traditions, because it's all so quirky, isn't it? You, know, you get an answer like that, and you think, right, I'm going to go and live with this teacher for six years or he stayed there for six years studying really hard with Isai in the Rinzai tradition um, now two years after he'd gone there Isai died and the second abbot was Master Myozan so this is an important relationship for Dogen, Master Myozan he was a very sincere person but even though he was the abbot he didn't have the confidence to say that he had experienced enlightenment so he was probably, you know, quite an ordinary kind of person, very wholehearted, very sincere, and had the honesty to say, well, I don't know if I've experienced enlightenment or not. So he says to Dogen, the Dogen says to him, hey, let's go to China. I know, it's great, isn't it? It's so human, these stories. There they were, these two totally sincere practitioners thinking, we haven't quite got it yet. We've got all these teachings, but we don't quite understand. Let's go to China, which is where Zen, which is called Chan uh, China, was very developed. And apparently it's a very dangerous journey at that point. I don't quite know why, because Japan and China are quite close, aren't they? But it was a dangerous journey that they made together. Huh? Pirates, Pirates. okay. Yeah, yeah, quite possibly, yeah. So Dogen was still only 23 years old. Yeah, amazing. He'd done all this, and he's still only 23 years old. When he'd been there not very long, Myozen died. He got an illness and died. And it's very touching this, that even though Dogen stayed, when he went back to Japan, he took the ashes of his teacher, and he writes about travelling back to Japan with the ashes of my teacher. I find that very touching, that he had that sort of loyalty to his teacher. Okay, so here he is. He's this young man. His teacher's died. He's only 23, or 24 by now. And he's very disappointed in what he finds. Very like Hakuin. You know, these people that have got this kind of quest. They're not, they do not get taken in by any kind of formalistic... Um, 
people practicing Buddhism just because that's what you do, because that's the culture. So he was pretty, pretty disillusioned and disappointed. Most of them were Rinzai temples, and he thought, well, I already know about Rinzai. I've been studying that in Japan. So he, he was getting um, quite disappointed. Uh, he says his travels seemed useless. The sense of disillusionment. I've come all this way and it's useless. So he was thinking he'd return to Japan, but he met an old monk called Shin, and he told him about a very excellent Buddhist master, something like Ketogichi. I probably pronounced that completely wrongly. Now, Dogen had met this guy before, and he hadn't been very impressed because he wasn't taken in by people. But he thought, oh, well, I'll go and see him again and see if it's you know, better this time. And through him, he met um, a very great master called Tendo Nyojo, or Nyojo. And this became you know, a very, very important teacher for Dogen, Nyojo. So he goes to his monastery on a mountain, Tiansum Monastery, on a mountain in China. Um, and he studi- studies very, very hard with him, very, very devoted practice. Uh, Nyojo really recognized Dogen's ability. And I think that's very interesting as well in, in the Zen tradition, the relationship between the disciple and the master. So there's a recognition. Dogen recognized the master and the master recognized the student and they entered into this very, very intense relationship. Um, and the most important matter that he learned there was the meaning of Zazen, the real meaning of Zazen. And this is where, I mean, in the Soto tradition, it talks about the thousand days of Dogen's practice on the mountain. thousand days where he worked hard all day and meditated all night, slept for two or three hours in a seated position. Yeah. So that's part of the Soto tradition. That's what this woman, Mora O'Halloran, that's what she does as a modern Soto practitioner, did the thousand days of Dogen's practice. That's a long time, isn't it? I mean, that's nearly three years of working all day, because in Zen... Everything is your practice, so you work, you, you know, cooking and cleaning and all that kind of stuff is very much an expression of your enlightenment as well. Meditate all night in Zazen and sleep for a couple of hours. So he did that. And um, he had very, very important experience, which is the dropping away of body and mind, which I guess was Dogen's enlightenment experience. It's talked about as a dropping away of body and mind. So I'll just read you... Um, a little bit about that because Dogen was quite literate so he recorded the question and answers with his teacher so they're, they're still in the tradition uh, it's quite technical which I won't go into so there's, there's a, this ex- expression dropping away a body and mind and Dogen didn't understand this um and I think it is literally like you sort of drop away your karmic self. You drop away your egoistic self, your sort of... Um, obviously, you've still got a body that goes about in the world, but you drop away all the clinging. So dropping away body and mind is letting go, being completely released from clinging. And in the words, in the Chinese characters, it's both escape and loosening, which is interesting, isn't it? So it's loosening the bonds and escaping. That's the dropping away. So he asked the teacher, what is this dropping off of body and mind? Shinjin Datsuraku. And Nyojo says, dropping off body and mind is Zazen. Very simple answer. And this teacher says, usually we think Zazen is a kind of method to attain dropping off body and mind or some kind of revelation or enlightenment. But Nyojo said, Zazen is dropping off body and mind. And he said, dropping off body and mind is Zazen, just sitting. And he recommended that Dogen just sit. And this is the origin of just sitting. Now, just sitting is still something that's practiced quite widely in the Buddhist world. We sometimes do it here at the Buddhist Centre, just sitting. This is where it comes from. It's called shikantaza. That's the Japanese root. So shikantaza is just sitting, which goes right back to Dogen. And the idea is you just sit. You are enlightened, you just sit. You're not trying to get anywhere. You're not trying to attain anything. You are just sitting. If you don't understand that, that's fine, because it is extremely hard to understand. I don't think I understand it, but that's where um, it comes from. That's what he learnt in his thousand days of intense practice up on a mountain in China. It's fantastic, isn't it? Um, I think they're, they're not dissimilar. It's not exactly the same. They're different schools of Buddhism. Pure Land Buddhism has got a lot about faith and devotion. 
Is that right, Matt McGinnis? Yeah, whereas this just sitting, it's obviously got a huge amount of faith. I think this is a very interesting question. You have to have, the only way just sitting can work is within a context of faith. Otherwise, you're just sitting there doing nothing. So you've got to have this immense faith in, the, in Buddha nature, in enlightenment. But there isn't any particular ref, uh, reference to any Buddhist deities or anything like that in Zen. It's a very kind of pared down, spare approach to practice. So rather than um, having Amitabha or any of those figures, it's more like just chopping wood, just carrying water, just sitting. This is it, right now. Right now we're all enlightened, it's just that we don't know it. So it's very kind of basic, well it's not basic at all, but it's very pure and simple and pared down. But I think faith, um, all the things I've read about it over the last few days, and I've, I've read loads of notes and it's been really wonderful, but faith isn't talked about very much, which I've been very intrigued by, because you'd have to have immense faith for it to work as a path, even though it's not a path, <laughs> as a kind of way. So anyway, now what he's learnt is to practice Zazen is enlightenment. We should not, not look for anything else other than practicing Zazen. So he's answered his question. This big question, if we've all got Buddha nature, then why do we practice? That in a way that's a dualistic question. He's realizing practice is enlightenment, enlightenment is practice. Yeah. Don't get that, that's fine. It's very, very obtuse, obtruse. But he's answered his question, he's answered this kind of problem that he had. I'll read you something that Kudananda writes on this, which is good, if I can find it. Practice, in Dogen's terms, is itself the manifestation of, a, of an intrinsic realisation. Yeah? It's a manifestation of an intrinsic realisation. The Dharma is amply present in all beings, but unless one practices it, it is not manifested, and without realisation it is not attained. Attainment, however, is no attainment. I mean, it, it is great, this stuff. It does bend your mind, but that's very, very good. So you are practicing to get back to where you were in the beginning, in a way. So there is attainment, but it's the attainment of no attainment. It is not the result of, aim, of aiming at anything. All things are always the Buddha nature. Seeing this perfectly, as it is in the present moment, with complete at-oneness with the events around one, in total openness to its wonder and perfection, as in fact absolute reality itself, is both the nature of practice and the nature of enlightenment. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? It's a very interesting approach. It's worth thinking about. Okay? So there he is. He's, he's, he's been recognised. He's got the transmission at this point, still only in his mid-twenties, been recognised as being a part of that great lineage going back to the Buddha. Returns to Japan and becomes a Zen master. He's only 27, becomes a very young Zen master. Now apparently when lots of other Buddhists go to China and come back to Japan, um, the question is asked, what have you brought back? And, and people expect to bring their statues and um, sutras and chants and all kinds of things, images. And of course, typically he says, I have come back empty-handed. Yeah. The fullness of emptiness, I've come back empty-handed. And he really wanted to lead a humble life. He wanted to lead a simple, a, the simple life of a humble person. He didn't want to be um, standing on any kind of status, which I think is also very interesting because Buddhism was... was um, very well established in Japan at this point and lots of people would have been just standing on status and authority and you know, being ahead of the temple or whatever. He didn't want to do any of that. And he didn't want to um, form any kind of sects. sects. Like the Rinzai tradition has got loads and loads of sub-sects but Soto hasn't got any. It's just a single unified tradition. And I think that's interesting in terms of Bante why he's got Dogen on the refuge tree. With this idea of pulling on lots of different threads but having a unified tradition so that was his wish and he practiced away and, and when he was 33 he founded his own monastery and he practiced there for 10 years see I find this very very inspiring this guy who's got so much you know realised the answer to his deepest question and he just practices quietly founds a temple and gets on with his practice and he always read he always wore a very rough robe apparently Lots of the Buddhist priests would have been wearing these great, you know, lovely shiny cases and so on. He always just wore this rough robe. He wanted to lead a very simple life. 
practiced there for 10 years. And then for um, some reason, it could be that where his temple was was near Kyoto, and Kyoto became a very big, busy city, so he moved. And he founded another temple um, that's called Aihiji, and that's still there. That's the main Soto temple of Japan. So that's been there since you know, the 13th century. Isn't it? I'd, I'd love to go there. Something that's been a living place of practice for so many years, hundreds of years. And what's interesting is in his life, that temple was still very small. So he was what he's become a great figure in Buddhist tradition. And when he died, there were only 20 to 30 people at his temple. He was just this humble man practicing the Dharma and teachings to, to those that came. But he didn't sort of, um, in any way, sort of go out and try and procure any kind of fame. So when he's 53, he dies, and it says that he dies in Zazen. He dies in meditation. Very sort of um, simple life, very simple life in a certain kind of way. And he wrote, he didn't write a lot, but he wrote something called the Shobo Genzo, which um, is still studied. Very, very abstruse, hard to understand. And something called the Shobo Genzo Zuimonki, which is easy to understand, I think. And I'm going to read some of those bits out when we're doing our meditation. So you're going to get some of the direct teaching from Dogen. Isn't that great? You know, here we are in the West in the 21st century and we can actually hear Dogen's exact words as if we were his students. Um, okay, so how are we doing for time? Just say a little bit more. So, of course, the... There, I think his approach is fraught with pitfalls, this idea that in sitting we are already enlightened. Um, the pitfalls obviously being laziness, thinking you don't need to do anything. And this is, the, as I said earlier on, this is what Hathawin was really um, rebelling against because he lived 300 years later and there were lots of temples apparently where there were monks who became monks because that was part of the sort of social tradition that um, young men would join the local temple and they'd just sit there doing nothing thinking that they're silently illuminating themselves and actually they're just totally deluded and they're not making any effort in their practice. So that's very interesting that Hakuin's approach is, is huge effort. He really believed in, in diligence and effort. So one of the pitfalls of, of Dogen's approach is um, laziness and delusion, of course. I mean, I think, I think if I come across a tradition and the teaching was just sit and you'll realise the truth. Well, I don't know that I would have got very far. And actually, this is one of the criticisms that I still hear in the modern times of Zen, Zen schools, that they're not very good at teaching people how to meditate, the sort of skills of how do you watch your mind. Um, but you know, they're very, very good on discipline, um, which some of our schools aren't so good on discipline. So, you know. Um, however, I think the strength of his approach if it's applied properly, is it? I was thinking about this. It's profoundly optimistic, isn't it? You know, so many of us have got such poor self-view, and we always think we're failing in our practice. You know, you do this, I can't do the metabolism, I can't stay concentrated, I can't do this, I can't do that. But if we can believe that right now, I'm enlightened. Actually, it's just that I don't know it. If that's understood in the right kind of way, and I think it's very difficult to understand in the right kind of way, it's an incredibly optimistic approach to practice. Um, knowing that there's nowhere to go and no one to be. There's a book by Aya Kamer, I think, called Being No One, Going Nowhere. I love that title. It's a very intriguing title, Being No One, Going Nowhere. But when I hear that title, I feel relieved. I think, oh, God, that's a relief. You know, there's some sort of relaxation in this approach if it's applied properly. However, Bante, our teacher... He, he's very, very wary of this approach, particularly taught to newcomers. He calls it the danger of potentiality. Because it's not only that one can be very lazy and you think you're doing just sitting and actually you're doing the just daydreaming and just drifting around and just going to sleep practice. You're calling it just sitting. And the other danger is what he calls the danger of potentiality where you think there is a permanent fixed self within you. There's this Buddha within you, this Buddha nature. And of course in Buddhism, one of the central teachings is that there's no fixed, enduring self, that everything's insubstantial. So there's quite a risk with this approach of um, making a substantial being and then completely misunderstanding the Buddhist teaching. So that's quite interesting. And Bhante, just very recently, he's talked about how there's no doubt in his mind that the Buddha is always taught 
a developmental path. It's the idea of overcoming the unskillful and cultivating the skillful. If you go back right back to the Pali Canon, there's no doubt that's what the Buddha taught. Now, I think in his own way, that is also what Dogen's teaching, because he's saying you have to practice in order to refine the gold and polish the jewel. So I don't think the two things are different at all, but you have to understand how they're not different. And I think that it's very, very easy to misunderstand. Reflecting on this, I think it's very, very interesting how Dogen taught within a whole system a whole system of spiritual discipline that would have been in Japan at that time. So mostly he'll be teaching he'll live on mo- people who live in monasteries. Um, very strong discipline of work, you know, cooking, cleaning, meditating in a disciplined kind of way. So that's probably quite different from, say, if I read some of Dogen's stuff now as a Westerner and didn't know anything about Buddhism and I thought, oh, I'll just sit. There's no context for that. And then I probably wouldn't have got anywhere at all but if I was if I was a a sort of young person in a Zen temple in the 12th century already there's a whole context of discipline spiritual friendship study and so on going on and then the Zazen takes place within that uh, perspective it's also very interesting that one of Dogen's very famous um, writings is the treatise treatise to the Tenzo and the Tenzo is the head cook so he got this whole thing about how to cook as if you're enlightened even cooking becomes an enlightening activity. And it's interesting, actually, I met Mr. Sona about this, and he said about, about uh, Dogen's approach, and he said it would be interesting for me to, to tell you guys that apparently Bante said somewhere that we should, or we could, rather than thinking of enlightenment as a point of realisation, we can think about enlightening, that we're continually enlightening or becoming enlightening. Because, again, I think what Dogen's... Um, a counterbalance to is this idea that here I am as this deluded being and one day I'm going to be over there as this enlightened being and I'm going somewhere else, the other shore to this lovely you know, lovely place that's nirvana that's a very easy misunderstanding again to have from the Buddha's teachings whereas what Stogan's saying is actually the world is the same it's just that you see it differently you see it totally differently if you're enlightened but everything's the same I mean that's fantastic as well isn't it I'll read out some little quotes from that later on um, but I think it is very interesting that this approach to Zen arose within a very, very disciplined um, approach to the spiritual life. Yeah. I've lost something. I'll read you another little bit about the importance of practice again. Some image, some really nice images actually about how you practice to uncover what's already there. Water that has been first boiled and then allowed to cool is certainly different from ordinary, ordinary water, though both are equally cool. That's a great image, isn't it? So you've got two bodies of water. One of them's been boiled and the other hasn't. So that's been boiled through practice. You've still got ordinary water, but it's different ordinary water. Because one of the things in Zen is about how it's ordinary as well. You, know, you, li- you just live the ordinary life, but you see things differently. There must be a difference too between the ordinary man and the disciple who has undergone, undergone a long training. If there were not, admittedly, Zen realisation would be useless. <laughs> they are as alike as equally within the Buddha law. But the point of difference is that one follows the way with delight and the other does not. Okay, this is another very good metaphor. Though swimming in the same water, the man who has his clothes on is hampered because his body does not move freely through the water. That's great, isn't it? So it's like we're swimming through water with our clothes on, which is our delusion. And someone who's enlightened is still, enlightened is still swimming through the roof, but they're not dragged down by the weight of self, the weight of clinging. Again, just as two people facing but separated by a pane of glass cannot talk to each other, so we are immersed in the holy, tr- holy truth, but as it were cut off by glass. I sometimes experience that actually. It's as if there's a pane of glass between me and the truth, you know, and I'm sort of I'm cut off. I know something's there, but I'm cut off by this pane of glass. Somehow the glass has to be got away. Somehow the swimmer has to has to discard the clothes. This is the absolute necessity for seeing the nature and being enlightened. This is the real life. When you do all that, this is the real life when practice and realisation are one. Finally, he realises the ultimate goal of Zen, to adapt freely to the world. 
Now the parents are like parents, the children like children, the husband like a husband, and the wife like a wife. The willow is green and the flower red, the bird flying as a bird and the fish going as a fish. I love that. So everything is just as they are, just expressing themselves as they are, knowing who they are, but as an expression of flow, I guess, rather than a clinging to trying to trying to fix oneself around this delusion of self. We call it ordinary life, and it is. But it, this is also the truth unchanged throughout the ages. See, when it is cold, the bird perches on the tree, the duck takes to the water. Each repairs only to its own refuge. The truth is a truth in each. Where there is no inequality, i.e. everything is sort of equally expressing or manifesting reality, the heart is tranquil and the world radiates the light of peace. This is our Soto Zen and it is the final resting place of Zen. Yeah. I think that's why I'm very drawn to Zen, this idea that you just live your life. You just, you just live your life. That's all you need to do, but you live it from this very, very pure place, profoundly different relationship with things, but you still just live your life. Okay, um, i just finished in a moment um, telling you about this um, TV program I saw recently. I'm just going to give you a few quotes from this. It was called Extreme Pilgrim. I've got to stand up, don't I? Some of you saw this, did you? About this um, guy who was an Anglican priest, yeah, quite a young guy, who decides to go and follow different traditions. I mean, it is it's kind of reality TV, so it's slightly tacky from that point of view. And one of them, he goes to the Shaolin Monastery, which is where Bodhidharma first went, and he learns Kung Fu and all that. That's so-so. But then he, he, he goes up the mountain three days, walk, climbs up through the Chinese mountains for three days to this tiny little temple up in the mountains. And um, he practices there. He tries to learn Zen there from this very authentic teacher, quite a young guy, only maybe 20 or 30 people there. And... Um, the sort of Zen they do, it's not sitting. So they do practice, they do Zazen, but everything is the practice. So they do a lot of this very, very beautiful sort of Tai Chi movements, extraordinarily beautiful. And they do chopping, they do cleaning. And one of the things they have to do is climb up the mountain 2,000 feet every day, carrying water and gas and food. And they would all do it. Everything is as the practice. I mean, I can't do it because of my body. <laughs> but... Um, extraordinarily beautiful so every single thing you do is that you're getting into the flow of life so that's the practice being with the flow of life and they seem extremely happy and they live as community I mean I've had a huge effect on me watching this and there's this amazing scene where the master does this tai chi on the roof of the temple and zen is often this thing if you meditate on the edge of the abyss if you meditate on the edge of a cliff you're not going to go to sleep so that's a kind of, that's a kind of zen thing and this guy's doing this Tai Chi on the roof of the temple. And, and, and then there's this long shot. So the, temple, the temple's on the edge of a cliff. There's the roof. And there's just a sheer drop, thousands of feet. If he slipped, he would just definitely go to his death. And he's doing this amazing. I mean, it's such a riveting image, this guy doing Tai Chi on the roof, on the edge of the abyss. And he looks completely happy. Yeah. Anyway, I'll read you what, um, some of the quotes, because they're very good. So the master says to this English chap quite at, at the beginning, I don't need to introduce this place. You can see it for yourself because it's extraordinarily beautiful, high in the Chinese mountains. One thing I should say is that our disciples have only one purpose, and that is to practice. And in the first lesson, when he's called to the monk, the first lesson he gets, he turns up thinking he's going to have this great sort of spiritual conversation. And the monk hands him a mop and he's doing this mopping of his little room yeah. and he gets Pete, this guy doing the mopping and, he's, and it's all about moving from the Tantian, the centre yeah. amazing, that's his first lesson is how to mop the floor later on he's getting in quite a tease, this guy thinking I don't understand I think, you know, I'm, I'm doing my head in here I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing I'm no good at it, etc, etc so he asks for an interview and this guy who's got this lovely kind of benign face, very gentle face, very sort of humorous face, he says, the reason is very simple why you're getting in a state. You don't have a profound understanding of Zen. The environment here is different from a large monastery like Shaolin. All you have to do is become harmonious with it. 
All your anxiety and worry is generated in your mind. So you have to question yourself very thoroughly. What are the reasons for your disquiet? You have to think deeply about it. You need to learn Zen to release yourself from life's problems. You have to enter Zen before you can learn martial arts. Like this, like this morning, carrying things up the mountain. So we've seen the shot of these people. I mean, it's really beautiful, like these monks, it's all flowing up the mountain, laying them down with all this stuff, you know, bottles of water and so on. So like this morning, carrying things up the mountain, this is the kind of realization of Zen. Everything is constantly changing, including your life in the UK. But all difficulties are temporary. Things are changing non-stop. Just now, you've seen the birds in the sky soaring so naturally. Look at these trees, how peaceful they are. When it's windy, they'll bend with the winds. Without the winds, they're very calm. To really learn Zen, you have to become one with nature. Very harmonious, very relaxed, very carefree. This way you can have a healthy body and a good mind and rid yourself of all obstacles. Yeah, isn't that beautiful? Very simple. And this guy looks quite kind of... Well, I wasn't really expecting that. And then he says, maybe I was more wound up than I thought. <laughs> it's very funny. <laughs> Here's what the teacher's saying. And then there's these two old women at this monastery who've been there 50 years. So they've been there long before this young monk came. This young monk came to restore the temple. I think probably he got disillusioned with the big monastery, which has become quite commercialised. So he goes up the mountain to start this new temple. And these two old women are extraordinary faces, you know, very lined, hardly any teeth. And they've just been living there for 50 years up on this mountain, just growing veggies and practising the Dharma. And uh, the guy asks the woman about non-attachment. And she says, you say that Buddhists have to abandon all kinds of love. That's the question he's asked. If you learn to renounce the earthly world and love Buddhism, then could you really abandon it all? If you love people, how can you abandon them? Wouldn't it be better to join forces and combine our love? So that's the pithy little teaching he gets from the old lady. Wouldn't it be better to join forces and combine our love? And she's got this lovely kind of characterful face. You, know, you can just see that she's lived a very harmonious life. Okay, so I'm going to stop there. So we need to become one with nature. And I think what that means is becoming one with flow. We can see nature all around us. And I think Zen Buddhism is very much about becoming one with flow, having a sense of flow in the body, in the mind, in the heart. And then we can become very harmonious, very relaxed and very carefree. Yeah, be nice. Yeah, let's just have a pee break and go and get a glass of water if you want to. And then let's come back and hear the words of Master Dogen.